And hello again to all of you. It's really, really good to be here with you today. My name is Sandy, and we are in the second week of our sermon series on the parables of Jesus. And if you'd like to get a head start, we're going to be spending most of our time this morning with the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, which you can find on page 1557 in the red Bibles that are below the seat in front of you. As I've been sitting with this parable this week, and as I've been making plans for my own garden, I have been thinking a lot about my grandparents, who forgot more things about most things, or forgot more things that, forgot more, there we go, about most things than I will ever know. One of those things is planting and tending to a garden. Together, my grandparents raised 15 children on their family farm, which as I'm sure you can imagine, yielded a crop of a lot of very good stories and a whole harvest of what I think are even better family sayings, although I'm not sure that I'm brave enough to repeat most of them in church on a Sunday morning. I will, however, paraphrase my favorite of these sayings for you, which is this, get your rear behind you. I'll let you imagine for yourself what the original version of that might have said. But loosely translated, it means something like get out of the way, get yourself in order, and get your job done. And I think this particular saying could actually be why I tend to enjoy Mark's gospel the most. Mark is someone who continually has his rear behind him. He doesn't dawdle around, he doesn't waste time, he gets right to the good stuff. And so you won't find in the book of Mark many lengthy speeches. There isn't a whole lot of descriptive language. His telling of things tends to be fairly short. And compared to Matthew and to Luke, Mark records very few parables because he is busy reporting the action of Jesus, the Son of God who has come into the world to bring about God's kingdom. And so for the first few chapters, the narrative of Mark moves at this breakneck speed as Jesus is baptized, begins his ministry, calls his disciples, casts out demons, heals the sick, restores the paralyzed, forgives sins, eats with sinners, and goes head to head with religious leaders. And all the while, as all of this is unfolding, as Jesus is moving and speaking and acting, there is this rising hum of curiosity rumblings and whisperings and wonderings. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Son of God? Could this be the dawning of his kingdom? Then, as it is now, the kingdom of God was a phrase that referred to the time in which God finally has his way, when he steps into the scene and takes over from the mess that we have made out of things. And the problem, both then and now, is that everyone had a different idea about what that should really look like. They were looking for a king who would bring about political and social liberation for Israel. And Jesus, well, he just wasn't very impressive. They knew his family, they knew where he grew up, he surrounded himself with ordinary people. And they were looking for the king who would establish once and for all perfect obedience to the law. And Jesus, I mean, he heals on the Sabbath and he harvests grain on the Sabbath and he eats with sinners and he doesn't even fast for goodness sake. This isn't the kingdom of God the way they expected the kingdom to be. And so just before we get to our parable in Mark chapter 4, the rumblings and the whisperings and the wonderings of the crowd begin to change at the end of chapter 3. 
Is he out of his mind? Is he possessed by demons? Is he even telling the truth? And so Jesus gets up, and he gets into a boat, and he rows out far enough onto the lake for his voice to echo across the water and be heard by the curious and fascinated crowd. And he begins to tell them what it really looks like when God steps into the scene and has his way. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 9 say this. Again, Jesus began teaching by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat it out on the lake. And while all the people were at the shore at the water's edge, he taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching, he said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and they ate it up. And if I'm not very much mistaken, I'm pretty sure that the St. John Revised translation of this passage also mentions something about deer right here. Some of the seed fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, it grew, and it produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. And now what my ears want to hear when I listen to this parable is get your rear behind you. Just be the right kind of soil. And if you've heard this parable taught before, then this is maybe the point that you've heard emphasized. Be the right kind of soil. Even Jesus' later explanation to his disciples seems to support this for us. He says in Mark chapter 4, verses 13 to 20, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. And as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and they choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. We hear this and we think, all right, I've got it. Just be the right kind of soil. Don't get waylaid by Satan or by persecution or by the worries of life or the lure of wealth. Just get your rear behind you and produce a crop. And that's kind of there in the parable. And it's generally pretty good life advice. Keeping my rear behind me remains the fastest way that I know to sweep a floor or stack wood or clear a driveway. But it's missing the point of the parable. And it's an important one to get right because Jesus says if we don't understand this parable, we're not going to get any of the other ones either. And where I think our ears are hearing the wrong thing is in the assumption that you and I are responsible for producing life. If I try harder, if I do better, 
if I get myself in order and get my job done, then life will happen. I will produce 30-fold, or if I'm even better, 60-fold, or if I really get my rear behind me, then 100-fold, and there will be life in me and life around me. But with all gentleness and solidarity, I want to ask you this morning, how is that going for you? Because I don't find that it has worked very well in my own life, no matter how good my intentions are. And I'd like to suggest this morning that Jesus has something better for us. And the key to finding it is to think again about the harvest. There are a whole lot of things about living in the year 2023 that are highly overrated, but something that is great is that if a pastor is relentless enough in her research, she can find a reliable source reporting on the average wheat yield in Palestine in the time of Jesus. And it isn't 100 times or 60 times or even 30 times what was planted. It was three or four, or if you had an especially good year, maybe five times. And so I think the key to understanding what Jesus is trying to tell us about what his kingdom looks like is to acknowledge that the kind of harvest Jesus is describing is absolutely, ludicrously impossible. And it doesn't matter how good the soil is. And if you think I'm a little bit of a nerd now, just wait, because I can also tell you that there is only one other place in scripture that speaks of a hundredfold yield on a harvest. And it's in the book of Genesis. Chapter 26, verse 12 says, Isaac planted crops in that land, which was Egypt, and in the same year, he reaped a hundredfold. Not because he was a very good farmer, and not even because he was very righteous, but because the Lord blessed him. And we are far enough removed from this time and this place that when we read through Genesis, we tend to gloss past this in the same way that our brains skip over names like Maher Shalal Hashbaz that we don't really know how to say. But Jewish exegetical literature marvels at the way that God did this impossible thing right in the middle of a year that was supposed to be a famine. And then Jesus gets into this boat in Mark chapter 4, and he says, I am going to do this impossible thing again, but this time I'm going to do it in you. And so there can be a 30 or a 60 or a 100-fold harvest, not because of the quality of the soil, not because of our ability to get it right, but because of God, because it's something that only he can do. And something that's actually kind of curious about this parable is that there are all kinds of concrete reasons for why the seeds don't or shouldn't grow. They're evident in the parable, and then they're even more clear when Jesus explains them to his disciples. He says some people hear the word, and then Satan snatches it away from them immediately, like birds picking seeds off a path. That's one reason. Others face trouble or persecution, and then they turn away from Jesus, like plants with no root that wither up in the hot sun. Trouble and persecution. Jesus gives us two more reasons. Then still others are consumed by the worries of life or the deceitfulness of wealth or desires for other things that take hold of their heart and push out Jesus like thorns or weeds that choke out good plants. So worries and wealth and desires for other things. Three more reasons. Jesus structures it in this way. He gives us one reason and then two reasons and then three reasons. And he's building to his main point 
which is that there's no good reason given why harvest should come even in the good soil. There's no reason that it grows. He says this, others like seed sown on good soil hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. It just grows. It just produces a crop. It just does. Because this parable isn't ultimately a story about what we need to do in order to be saved. It's a story about what God does to save us because only God can create life. And in this parable, it's really a miracle that any seed ever grows at all. You know, given the birds and given the hot sun and the shallow soil and the weeds, we just don't have the conditions in ourselves to produce life. And the reason I think we so often hear this parable taught with a fix-your-soil kind of emphasis is that it's just a whole lot easier for me to see the bad soil in myself or in the people around me for that matter and to hold tightly to the part of this teaching that calls me to accountability, that calls me to fix my behavior. All of that is so much easier than it is for me to wrap my head around the kind of grace that would meet us in our brokenness and in our weakness and in our failure and somehow produce a hundredfold crop in a year of famine. But Jesus tells us that this is what it looks like when God has his way. And then we see this tangibly play out in the failure of the disciples and then the inexplicable growth of the early church. The disciples were there. They had this parable taught to them and then explained to them, and they thought they got it. They tried to be good soil. But then when push came to shove and persecution arose, every one of them abandoned Jesus at the cross. So if discipleship is only about us making sure that we are the good soil, then the church never should have happened. But it did. God had his way, and from them and in them, God raised up life where it made absolutely no sense. He had his way, and his church grew so much so that thousands of years later, here we are together today, talking about the same good news that the sower can reap so much because creating life is what God does and it's what only God can do. And then Mark kind of draws an underline in a great big circle around this idea by following the parable of the sower with another parable called the growing seed, or as a professor of mine used to like to call it, the parable of the lazy farmer. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 29 say this, Jesus also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seeds sprout and grow, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk and then the head and then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. So this man goes out, he scatters some seeds, he goes back to bed, and somehow the seed grows without his help and without his understanding. All by itself, the soil produces grain. And there's a neat little word in there that is really helpful, I think, for understanding what Jesus is trying to tell us about how the kingdom of God works. All by itself is the way that the NIV translates the Greek word automate 
which is the word from which we get our English word automatic. And when it's used in scripture, it is generally used to refer to that which God alone works, something that is worked by only God. We find it in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, used in reference to crops that grow in a sabbatical year. When the Israelites leave the land to rest and don't plant any crops, Leviticus 25 tells us that the earth produces all by itself, automate, because life is in the hand of God who provides for his people. So the farmer doesn't have to be industrious. He doesn't even have to be knowledgeable. He seems pretty bad at farming, if we're going to be honest about it, but that's kind of the whole point. The point of these parables, and really of all of the parables, is that life happens not when we get it right, but when God does what only God can do. The plot twist that no one saw coming as they gathered around that lake in Mark chapter 4 to listen to Jesus was that the kingdom of God was coming to all of the broken places, to all of the weary people, to the ones who had tried and failed, to the ones who didn't make the cut, to the ones who had nowhere left to go. We hear it later in Jesus' ministry in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, or the spiritually bankrupt, or the ones who are very well aware of their poor soil quality, because theirs is the kingdom of God. When God has his way, says Jesus, there is life exactly where it makes no sense. And this is very good news for us, because I wonder sometimes if we are more tired than we realize in this season of life where things are returning to normal. We can meet together in person, we can go to work, we can sing songs, we can volunteer, we can gather with friends, we can return to our normal social routines. But I wonder if normal feels a little harder than it used to, if we're a little bit worn out and the task of discipleship, of walking closer with Jesus, of living well and loving well, feels like this great, big, impossible thing. A big harvest sounds so nice, but I'm tired, and this is a year of famine. But these parables tell me that even though there is work to do, God is the one doing all of the heavy lifting. He's the one who brings life to dead places. He's the one who takes our weakness and our failure and our brokenness and our weariness and somehow reaps a hundredfold harvest. So he's calling us not to get ourselves in order and get the job done because we can't. And he knows that we can't. He's calling us to surrender to the life that he is already working in us. And this kind of feels counterintuitive. You know, it's not how farming works. It's not really how the world works either. But it is how God works. And among all of the whisperings and the rumblings and the wonderings of our hearts, am I doing enough? Am I trying hard enough? Am I growing enough? Am I producing fruit? I picture Jesus stepping into a boat rowing out far enough into the lake so that we can see him past our own crowded minds and hear his voice echo louder than our thoughts as he says, listen, 
I am the source of life, not you. Just come to me. Just rest in me. Just trust in me. Just let me do what only I can do. And God will bring a harvest, even in a year of famine. So will you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you that you are the source of life, that you are building your kingdom, that you are working in ways that we don't always understand to bring life to impossible places. And we come to you this morning to say that we need you. You know each one of us. You know what all of us are facing. You know what all of us are feeling. And so God, we ask that you would do what only you can do. Would you meet us in our weariness, in our worry, in our weakness, in our failure, and bring us back to life. Teach us to rest in your grace and to live by your strength to continually look to you to supply our every need as you do the impossible and raise up life in and around us. God, even our brokenness is yours. And so we give it to you this morning, trusting that you will redeem and restore and make new as you build your kingdom all around us. Walk with us into this week and teach us to continually direct each other and those we encounter to the life that is ours in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.